Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, May the 12th, 2023. Two days to, you know what, Mother's Day. Uh, and we are turning our attention to parents and particularly mothers today. We did a show with uh, a distinguished uh, Canadian writer, Charlie Foran, uh, who has a new book out on his father, Just Once No More. He's of a generation when he's beginning to think about his debt of one kind or another to his father and how writing about his father helps him understand himself and us. And we're dealing with a similar book today, but this time we're focusing on mothers with another distinguished literary figure, my guest, Terry McDonnell. He is a, a legend in the magazine publishing industry. He's one of the co-founders of LitHub, very much involved in the history of magazines, particularly new magazines. In fact, he's left his uh, archives uh, to uh, the Briscoe in, in Texas because they will be of value to cultural historians. He's very much associated with new journalism, men like Hunter Thompson and George Plinton and Norman Mailer to be included in uh in that community is quite an achievement. Um, and he has a new book out, not about his father, but about his mother, just in time for Mother's Day, although it came out um, a couple of weeks ago. Irma, The Education of a Mother's Son. And Terry is joining us from his home in the West Village. Is it East or West Village, Terry? It's the West Village, way West. West Village, uh, New York City. Uh, Terry, what is it with all these guys writing books about their parents? Would, uh, would <laughs> Hunter know. S. Thompson, I, and would he be turning in his grave? Uh, no, because he would know how I got there. I didn't set out to write about my mother. I um, set out to write about really myself and how the things that I learned as a kid uh, somehow helped me in my career and what I did when I was a grown-up. But then um, it was really tough going, and I finally realized, with the help of a couple friends who had read the manuscript, that the most interesting person on my pages was not me, it was my mother. Um, what I was sounding like like was one of those old media guys who tell the same stories over and over again. I, I had no, it was a very unfresh voice. So with that, I tossed it all out and started over again. And at the beginning, in the voice of a little boy uh, moving west with his mother when he was, you know, four years old. It, we, we did a show a couple of weeks ago with the Financial Times writer Henry Mance on what it means to be a boy in 2023, particularly with the obsession with online stuff and the fake heroism of online boys. I wonder if that's occurred to you. You have um, you have sons now of your own. Uh, how different it was for you growing up? What, what, how, how do you think of yourself? Was what part of generation? What decade do you think of yourself as growing up? I'm not going to be as rude as to ask your age, but you can give us a hint. Uh, uh, no, I was born in 1944, um, shortly before, four months before my father uh died in a plane crash he was a navy flyer so uh i 
I grew up with the, you know, the backdrop being World War II. So as a little boy, I would play war. I would, you know, fight the Japanese and I would fight the terrible Nazis and I would crawl around and, and uh, throw grass bombs and just, I was a terror. And uh, my sons, on the other hand, played Ghostbusters. And I think the difference is all right there. And That's what about it. these days, Terry, um, what it means to be a boy online? I mean, your childhood in the 50s must have been so profoundly different, particularly one-parent families, which you, were, uh, which you were part of when you lost your father, where you didn't know your father. For boys growing up online these days, it's a, it's a vivid contrast, and it seems as if they're infatuated with this fake heroic characters online, these male bullies who are pathetic and brittle. I think that's true. My, my sons missed that. They're, they're like 35 now. It wasn't quite the same. But uh, boys are falling behind everywhere. If you look at um, all the research, their, their reading scores are lower. Their math scores are lower. Girls are advancing more quickly. Boys have more problems, discipline problems. They have all kinds of abuse problems. And it has to do, I think, with the confusion of, you know, what that all might mean. Can we blame you, Terry? You were one of the founders of new journalism, of all these magazines about malehood, Esquire, and all these other publications <laughs> that celebrated that's, a certain kind of maleness. Yeah, that's kind of a, a goofy that's, that's below the belt, isn't it? Oh, no. <laughs> well, you know, there you go. To, to, I, uh, to make a, no, uh, a vulgar reference. We were, the, the stuff that I did, especially at Esquire, was in uh, all within the light of the women's movement. So that was happening. And we were going, yeah, that's good. At least I tried to make Esquire very pro, you know, feminine, the feminist movement, as it was called then, the second wave of it, I guess it was. Um, so we, you know, tried to be liberating the same way, but at the same time, we made fun of Robert Bly and his, you know, Iron Man stuff, which was goofy, I thought. Your book has been, um, again, so to speak, embraced by uh, the, the top reviewing platforms. The New York Times uh, looked at the book, they said, for a literary man's man, mother's news best although of course these reviews are all done by women and they all poke a little bit of fun at you terry do you see the book as your attempt to reinvent yourself as a man's man no uh i think that what's interesting about that review is that she didn't review the book she reviewed me yeah which career. is which is which you which is hardly surprising yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, you're a you're you're a moving. You know, when your one of your heroes Hemingway went out to shoot lions or tigers or elephants or whatever he shot, you're 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 a big target. Well, the, that's that's another uh, annoying part of that review, and, and <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's misunderstood. I I don't like Hemingway at all. He was a terrible father. I he was influencing me, but she, all that stuff is way out of context. I was I was struggling to figure out who I was, and then I realized I had been victimized by the Hemingway code, so to speak. You know, I had to be 
prove myself as a man, be fearless, come of age, stoic, you know, all of those things. Uh, but that was, that's, that was wrong. And the more I learned about Ernest, the less I liked him. And the book yeah, I think the more any, any of us learn about him. I mean, he was obviously a brilliant writer, but as, uh, as uh, one of son, the... He took his son Jack to a whorehouse when he was 13 years old. Yeah, I mean, he was clearly a son. terrible person. But, but Terry, I think one of the other reasons people compare you and Hemingway, and it's, it's not a bad comparison, there are worse people to be compared with, is that your first book, The Accidental Life, is Hemingway-esque in its style. You certainly have... Uh, a style that be compared, maybe not your life or your la your morality or lack of morality. Is that fair? I'm sure, but it's not just uh, Ernest. <laughs> it, I mean, my favorite writers uh, were, you know, Mike Hare and Jim Salter and Tom McGuane, especially. These are all, you know, noted male writers. But, uh, you know, I just tried to write as, as best as I could, as simply as I could. The, the New York Times review, as you said, it's kind of annoying. Um, it, it says it's a tough guy. Uh, oh, you talked about the accidental life was a tough guy book. And now the new book is, a, is your soft underbelly. Uh, therapist visits, journaling with colored pens, worrying about Alzheimer's disease. Um, and it, 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 it addresses the issue of Me Too and your relations with women. Is, there, is, is that unfair, Terry, do you think? Well... Uh, yeah, kind of the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the idea that my first book was littered with name dropping. I mean, hold on. I mean, who else was I going to write about? These were the people that I worked with. That's just like, there that is. Do you think that reviews matter these days? You you've been in the publishing industry for many years. Um, you're a, co-founder of LitHub, you know the book business inside out too. Does it really matter how the reviewing community uh, responds to your book? Uh, my experience, at least in terms of this show, is often the best review books don't sell and books which reviewers ignore entirely become huge hits. I wish I knew. Uh, when I, you know, when I got that first review from uh, the New York Times, I thought, oh, no, she, she's she not a bad review, Terry. No, I, I know, like... but I thought, but I thought, ah, that's it. That's oh boy. But then it took off in a different from a different direction. Where it's selling is at independent bookstores. People, I think, who who watch your show and who go to LitHub, um, which is the better audience, you know, or the perfect audience for a book like mine. Well, it's the perfect, and not that I'm suggesting. Uh what people should give their mothers for Mother's Day, but it's the perfect Mother's Day gift, Irma, the education of a mother's son. It's the story of a remarkable woman, your mother, Irma. Tell us a bit about her, Terry. Well, she, first of all, she never had a lot of time for Mother's Day. She recognized it as uh, marketing and uh, not very much to do with raising me. Uh, but she always went along, you know, she had a, I would make something at school and she would be, very happy to have it, but we're not talking white carnations or special lunches or anything. And she would always tell me a story about myself on Mother's Day when I would give her these presents, like well, the one I remember most clearly, and it was way when I was really little. I remember her telling me, I don't remember it happening. She took me to a, a 
little playground fair in Duluth, Minnesota, at a place called Park Point. And she put me on a pony, those ponies that go round and round. And the pony started to buck for some reason. But instead of being scared or whatever, I started laughing. And she thought that was wonderful and encouraged me in that regard with, you know, a kind of enlightened sense of having a good time and courage. And, you know, that's what she wanted to be like. I wonder if I really did that. Yeah, I mean, you you note that um, that was her, what you call her alchemy. You have a, a piece from the book featured in Let Hub this week that it gave you confidence, you as her son, that you could live in the real world. Is that what a good parent, particularly a, a good mother, does with sons? Give them enough confidence, but perhaps not too much. Well, yeah, she had, there's, a, there's another story in the book that I think is very telling. I, when, when we got to California, uh, I fell out of a cherry tree and I gashed the inside of my arm by my elbow falling down. I hooked it on a, a dead uh, branch. And um, we go, we, she looks at it and we go to the emergency room and she says, you have to look at this. It's hard to look at it, but you have to look at it. Otherwise, you won't remember what it was you did and what it meant. And I did look at it. I was seven years old. It wasn't that bad, really, in retrospect. I think I had 12 stitches or something. But boy, did that stay with me. And I think that uh, uh, when I started remembering things like that, one after another it hit me that she had you know, been constantly telling me that... Uh, I have to learn from my experience in the world, but that more importantly, I had to make my life as interesting as I could by learning the world. You, you obviously write about her as a mother, but she was your parent because you didn't have a father. Uh, did your experience with Irma, did it teach you about the whether or not the, the gendered roles of parents are meaningful or meaningless, depending on whether you have the good or bad fortune to have one or two parents? Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think I got a lot from her that I might not have gotten that I've been in a normal family unit. Um, I think because of her, I was- You gotta be careful these days, Terry, with the word normal. It may have been normal back then, not normal, but these days, most people grow up outside the two parent unit. Not most. A large minority there. Yeah, 47% or something like right. that. Um, yeah, you're right. Thank you. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be New York Times style censorist. That wasn't my point. No, what, I'm, what I mean is that because of my mother, I think I inherited or somehow some weird, you know, mother-son osmosis. I got a sense of her feminism, which was evolving at the time. And I was attracted to strong women, always. Why? Because of her, I think. And what was it about her that made you attractive to strong women? Their independence? Yes. Yes, their independence and their, you know what it was mostly? It was how they would, you know, not let me get away with stuff. You know, if I were bragging or if I was you know, playing the bad boy or showing off or whatever, I, they would bust me, like my mother did. But and, not uh, destroy your confidence. Do it in a way that 
you could learn and, and bolster yourself without undermining who you were? I think so. Because I'm, well, you know, the, the subtext of everything in the book is what I now think, which is that, um, you know, a, a mother's, you know, what a mother is like uh, is not about her love in the moment, which, of course, is appreciated but the echoes of it that stay with you your whole life and then and basically have formed you and um, keep pushing you in a direction that uh, she started you on. Do you think uh, that your life as it's evolved is, is a credit to her? Do you think she would be thrilled and proud with, with how you've lived your life? Well, I hope so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really, I really do. I, I always was worried about what she thought, and I always wanted to please her. When did she die? She died ten years ago. And you seem still—that's a short ten years, Terry. Well, it, it, uh, it coincided with my leaving, you know. Time Warner, Time Inc., Sports Illustrated. When I stepped away from all that, you know, career stuff, I, you know, I wrote the one book, but I, she was constantly on my mind. I, you know, they didn't, they, and you know how when you start remembering one thing, it leads to another. I would, I would be thinking about how we drove across the country in her Ford convertible in like 1950. And uh, then suddenly I would remember her, you know, with a scarf around her neck and those bobby socks things. And she was, you know, too young to have me, really, sort of. And she's talking a highway patrolman out of a speeding ticket. You know, where did that come from? Is there a, and, and these books are unavoidably generational, um, the, the Charlie Foreign book is very much about that silent generation. He's Canadian, so slightly different from America. These men who were silent and in their own way heroic mm -hmm. your woman uh, your mother was clearly not silent but there was a degree of heroism about her is there a generational quality to this or are you uh are you able uh terry to understand that every generation is nostalgic about the previous one well yeah i think everyone is nostalgic for their youth uh but this was more complicated, I think, because one of my favorite uh, pieces of history was what Tom Brokaw did, you know, The Greatest Generation. Right. And uh, my mother was, you know, that was her generation. But as I thought more and more about it and listened to other people talk about their parents, uh, you, you find that the the greatest generation had a lot of trouble. There was a lot of abuse, all kinds of alcoholism. My stepfather uh, was, by any measure, would be totally unacceptable today, for example. The book, in, in, in its own way, um, is uh, a philosophy of fatherhood, I think. One of the reviews notes that. What? Did your experience with your mother tell you about being, you said, as you said, you, you've got two sons, uh, one of whom is, is, is a quite well-known writer. Um, what did your mother, what was the model for parenthood that your mother provided you with? Maybe you 
maybe you uh, satisfied that maybe you didn't but how did what 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 kind of model did she create for you to aspire to as a parent she praised me for learning especially reading but even more especially for learning things in the natural world she had games we would be riding in the car and i would be she would have me learn all the trees learn the birds even the insects you know what's that it's a eucalyptus you know uh what color are cherry blossoms white and then they're pink you know it was like that kind of stuff it was the details she used to tease me when i was traveling a bit that uh it was fine to learn the whole wild wide world as she would put it in the argot of her generation but it was really good to learn the details of the way the world worked also and that she hoped that i was doing that what did she tell you about your father? Uh, this is the, the through line in the book. Uh, in, in the very beginning, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything. So I made up a story about him being a fighter pilot and, you know, shooting down a hundred zeros before they got him, stuff like that. And I would, and she would smile and she would say, well, your father really liked trees and he liked to read too. And he wrote wonderful letters. But that whole notion that he was a war hero uh, was something that she allowed me to, to grow up with, to try to you know, be proud of. And in the end, after she was dead, my uncle, my father's brother, told me that that was not true. My father had been a pilot but then he had been an instructor and he had died in a plane crash in Norfolk, Virginia, not in the Pacific at the Battle of Corregidor, like I had made up. So she, she made up a story about your father, which she maintained. No, she allowed, she allowed me to, to keep the story that I but, made. When, but when you grew up and you were an adult, did, did you talk to her about your father? No. How no. long was she married to him? year and a half. So it was a wartime marriage. Yeah, yeah. And think about that. All those, those women, you know, those wives that had, you know, marriages that were somewhere as short as the honeymoon, and then the husband would go off and come back, you know, either not himself because of what he had seen or, and, uh, and, you know, it was, it was really rough. Yeah, it's. I don't uh, think she ever had a bad time with my father. I mean, they weren't together long enough. Did she have a philosophy of life in terms of? I mean, she wasn't particularly unlucky. Many young women lost their husbands or boyfriends, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the parents of their children. But did she have a sense of good and bad fortune in her life? She must have believed that she was very lucky to have you as a son. You know, I when I thought about that, I thought when my when my sons were little i wondered if she was as preoccupied with me as i was with them and then i realized well you know what she had no choice but what about um, luck and fortune and the she fact didn't that believe she didn't believe in luck she had a philosophy or that <laughs> i don't know she would laugh if i she heard me say philosophy she had a a, a feeling that luck was phony that uh, you just, 
You know, things just were going to be what they were going to be. And the complaint about them was a big mistake. Her favorite song was a Doris Day song called, you know, whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. Yeah, in that wonderful Hitchcock movie, too. Yeah, it's a, yeah it's a and I remember her singing that along with the radio. And I remember wondering, asking, you know, why is that your favorite song? And she would say, well, because it's, it's two things. It's really pretty and it's really true. So she believed in the idea of agency, which is a yeah, yeah, uh, a, a quintessential American virtue. Is that so? There was something sort of distinctively uh, American about her. Do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, you really are that smart. That's uh, yeah. I think that's true. I really did. She do. have strong political views, one way or the other. Or was she disturbed by some of the injustices in America? You grew up at a time before desegregation and race was still hugely shameful in American history. Was there stuff that bothered her about the outside world or was she too preoccupied with simply surviving and bringing up a little boy? No, no. She was an, an activist teacher. She was, uh, she taught school her whole life, um, you know, from when they had bitch pipes and stuff. She taught reading and she was instrumental in getting rid of IQ tests because she thought that they were unfair to kids who we're not, you know, brought up in houses with books, homes with books. And she taught migrant children who would come up to the Santa Clara Valley from Mexico uh, every year for the for the fruit harvests. And uh, she was an advocate for them. And she was she it, you know, that the, the racial situation in the United States then was awful, but it was a whole lot worse in the South than it was in California. I had black friends from, you know, football, you know, all the way through. And that was sort of just the way it went. And she had no prejudice at all, except that she didn't like, uh, you know, how would she put it? Those politicians sometimes. But then she would never, she never had a position on Vietnam. I would rail on about it and she would listen. Right. Well, that was a, a generational thing. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting. The the Esquire re review uh, talks of the, the headline is the art of teaching boys to read. Um, you remember the mother who taught you to to love literature and forsake uh, coming back to Hemingway's vision of masculinity. In an odd way, you're you're still in her business as a writer, as a publisher. You're yeah, getting boys to read. Are you yeah. continuing her work, the work of Irma? You know, I always thought I would be a teacher in the end, and uh, maybe I still will. I admire it. It is the noblest calling, isn't it, Terry? I think it's one of the, and people always talk about the tragedy of American life, but I'm not sure if you could be Irma these days. You, you wouldn't be able to survive as a teacher, and it is the noblest calling to pass on wisdom and responsibility to the next generation. Yeah, I, I remember when I worked at the Washington Post Company at Newsweek, I told her about Kay Graham, who was exactly her age. Uh, Kay kind of reminded me of her the way she would sometimes when she was thinking, touch her earring or her pearls or whatever. They had the same haircut. I told my mother this. She said, that doesn't matter. And uh, she liked Kay Graham because she liked the idea that a woman could be in charge of herself and her businesses. And she 
in that conversation, I remember she pointed out that there was not a woman administrator in the entire Campbell Union School District where she taught. Did she make a conscious effort to distinguish the home and the classroom? In other words, not take the home into her formal teaching classroom and not bring the classroom back to you so that the home became just an extension of the classroom and her relationship with you became just another relationship with a pupil? I think that's a very insightful question, but it, nothing like that had ever occurred to me before you just said it. She would bring stuff home and I would be excited to take the IQ test and show off. Or I remember she read to me uh, relentlessly when I was little and the, the subtext of all that was that I could, if I read something, I could somehow look forward to experiencing that in my life as a grown up person, you know, like the travel. That's why that's why I liked the old man in the sea when I was like nine. Yeah, I, you, you're, you're, the title of the, the piece, the excerpt in LitHub is how to write about your mother and thinking about it, you make uh, a man makes himself enormously vulnerable by writing about his mother. It, it's the bravest thing they can do, isn't it? They can't really win. I don't know. You know, I, 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 as a writer, I mean, obviously there are braver things you can do, but to sit down and write a book about your mother makes you vulnerable in, on so many different fronts. You are really writing out of a glass house. I think, uh, I think that's very insightful too. I, you know, clearly, if you read the culture as I do, it's not my turn to talk. It's not my turn to even wave, probably. I'm like an older white guy. Uh, and I'm, you know, the whole sense of what could happen to me by writing about a woman or even my mother uh, gave me pause and still does sometimes. I haven't quite gotten over that. But then I thought, well, the hell with that. I'm just, I'm just going to do this the best way I can. And uh, if it works, I'll be very happy. But these lessons are not just white man stories. I mean, whether you're white or black or green or yellow, whatever generation you're from, the issue of one's mother and of growing up and of gaining confidence, some of this stuff doesn't change, does it, Terry? It doesn't matter whether we're in the 2020s or the 1950s or 60s. I think not, but a detail of that that I, that I write a little bit about is that when I was in my 20s and in New York, there was, uh, I think it was relatively new feminist thinking that the best women or the best men were raised by strong feminist mothers. And that uh, when I told uh, the women that I knew and liked about my mother, they said I was very, very lucky. And that was a very good thing. I think that that, um, maybe can be examined a little bit more by, you know, whatever uh, academic uh, gathering of facts and information can happen and to look for insights. Because, you know, mothers and daughters are one thing, but, you know, fathers and sons are one thing, but mothers and sons are something else. They, they, if you, the research that there is about that says that, um, those little boys are uh, are prone 
to violence and to meanness for fun and to showing off. And in fact, even um, if there's a, a, a lack of money, if it's a very tough situation that way, it can even change the way they think before they're four or five years old. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the word feminism. We've done a number of shows on what some thinkers describe as a post-feminist world. Uh, that world, that word feminist now is perhaps uh, archaic. What, what do you make of the current, shall we say, post-feminist debate in America, Terry? I, I, I have, you know, I, I, I think... I mean, all the women that I know are part of that, and that, I'm just I'm with them. But you're with them That's with what? Like. You're, they're, you're, you're, they're part of what? Feminism or post-feminism? Well, it's post-feminism now, isn't it? I mean, I know my son's girlfriends, uh, my wife, even who is younger than I. Uh, I, you know, I, I live in their world. What do you mean? You I, I don't know. Maybe I don't understand what you, I mean. I have post-feminism is or post-feminist thinking. That's not pejorative to me necessarily. Finally, uh, you note in Lit Hub, no story is told just once, but it's never exactly the same story. The story of mothers and sons, of course, as you suggest, has been told many times before. What's new about, or what did you want to make new about this story of Irma and your relationship with her that hadn't been told before? What will people get in this book that perhaps will surprise them, intrigue them, that they won't find elsewhere in other books about mothers and sons? It's also about memory, but not in any kind of academic way. It's about the way that you can explore your own memory to find things in your unconscious your subconscious that you would not had access to before people who have read the book say that it allowed them to think more about their childhood brought back childhood memories and uh, that made me very happy because it was an exploration of that on my part i didn't start out thinking i all this stuff i could pull it out of my head so you know so i the think book, that the, the book triggers memories that's what it i'm going to use that line from now on you can have it as a blurb from me, answer. Andrew Keane. This book blur. This book triggered my memories. It's going up twenty minutes after I get off the phone with you. <laughs>